Welcome, everybody, to the front porch. I'm here today again with Dennis. What's up, Dennis? Hey, man. How you doing today? Pretty good. So, topics of this podcast, we don't really have a set guidelines, per se. I think that in our show notes, we'll talk about, we'll point to some fast-forwarding to things. So, our topics range anything in pop culture, from video games to uh, board games, movies, comic books, kind of all the nerd culture culture that you could imagine. So if you're interested in skipping all this, if our listeners are, then look into the, I would encourage looking at the bottom and saying, hey, Pokemon goes here and whatever else is there, Star Wars is there, and just skip right on through. It doesn't offend either Dennis or I. Uh, so let's bring up our next topic. Um, so we were at Gen Con recently. It's the big convention in Indianapolis that's, what, one of the largest board game thing in the world, right, I think? Uh, first, first or second, right? I think there's one in Germany that might be big where they play train games. Essen, yeah, that's it, Essen. Uh, but so we were there, and it's always a experience. Was it you that said the campaign thing? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like gold. Uh, it said um, Gen Con's not a what is it? Not a it's not a vacation. Vac- yeah, it's not a vacation. It's a campaign. Like that is that is true. I can tell you from my standpoint i was beat when i was done so what do you uh what did you take away from gen con this year anything interesting anything fun that was unique to all the other times you've been Hmm. i mean it's it's a little different every year and um as 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 time goes on especially in the the last few years i've i've gotten a little more uh i want to say introspective but more analytical about myself and reactions to situations and things like that. And just admitting that if I, uh, if I sleep uncomfortably, I'm going to be, you know, more easily annoyed at stuff for the whole (laughs) next day. Um, right. But, uh, there's a lot to be annoyed with there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got crowds, you got, playing competitive games and only one person can win usually depending on the format of the game right uh and all of those things but uh, yeah man i don't know i got that one only one person could win thing i've really i really i guess i'm segueing here into some board game things topics but i'm really the last year just hardcore love and co-op games i mean i guess you say last two three years um, since we start my regular game group on Tuesdays with our friends, we started playing a co-op games. Um, but you were, you were here when we were playing Pathfinder and, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed that. I mean, I really enjoy that we're all still on a team and we're doing stuff and we're playing D and D right now. So that's clearly kind of a co-op, but, um, e- even going to a Gen Con where it's a large thing and, and yeah, I love playing tournaments and some of the stuff that we, that I like playing there, but you know, starting with a, a nice co-op game with people you don't know is pretty fun. For sure. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, we did, we did a handful of those events together at, at the convention. And, um, and there were some things that I demoed on the, on the, um, the exhibit hall floor. And I really, I did gravitate toward, toward the co-op games. Um, I think we talked about this before, but I have, um, 
a rather large immediate family. And so I, I play games. There are some games that I, you know, we play with everybody. They're more um, party or casual style games. And then um, the more quote unquote hardcore or, or serious games, you have to get into a smaller group because there's no, there's no good like competitive strategy board game that supports like eight or nine players. The, right. the, the largest you get are like, uh, I think Seven Wonders plays seven and um, a big game called Fortune and Glory. That's uh, right. I've heard that. It's, it's pretty cool. It's the company that does um, Last Night on Earth. And it's a, it's an Indiana Jones themed, not, not overtly themed, but that same like an adventure ar- treasure hunter traveling. Thing. Yeah. Treasure hunter, archeologist kind of thing. But, um, Last year, Gen Con, or maybe the year before, um, I bought somebody's unopened copy of Risk Legacy, which I know you guys played down in Bloomington, um, and uh, discovered after after just two play sessions of trying to play, you know, a competitive legacy campaign game with um, my dad and a few of my brothers that, like, you get personal conflict, like almost right away. Of course, yeah. it's Risk, which is kind of a terrible game to start with to build this whole legacy thing. And so I decided um, to switch to another game you guys played down there, um, which is Pandemic Legacy, which I believe their season one is still number one ranked board game on Board Game Geek. And rightfully so, I believe. Um, and yeah, especially in a in a legacy campaign kind of framework, I think the the co-op makes a lot more sense. Um, and I think that's part of what has um, made me a little more, a little more interested, a little more receptive to the co-op games. It also feels like there've been quite a few of them recently, just in the last year or so, a couple years. Um, big one is Gloomhaven, which I haven't gotten to try. Oh, I know. All right. We're a little sad because we have too many people to play that. Mm, sure, sure. We have a little bit too many people to play anything, I think, at this point, and that's one of our issues. We've had discussions of breaking in the group into two different things and having those kind of games, playing Arcadia Quest and some other stuff, but right. you mentioned earlier that there's just not a lot of games that are, you know, like eight players, and because one of our guys had said we're really fortunate that that we have so many, most people in the world are lucky to have two or three people that will play in a kind of a campaign-esque type game. And we're really fortunate to have more than that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the, I like the, the co-op stuff and I'm excited about uh, the season two that I got to see at Gen Con for pandemic. And it, I, without any kind of spoilers for people who weren't there or haven't seen it, the board, did you get to see the board on there? I didn't. I mean, we're only two games in the season one, so Oh. I saw their I saw their booth where they had like a sort of triage tent and, and some of that stuff. People were inside playing, and that was cool. Right. I, I didn't I didn't want to look at anything in spe- specifically, but I did peek at the board, and one of our one of our players, Zon, uh, who he'll maybe be on in a later on episode, uh, he was there with me, and he was like, "Hey, did you notice the board?" And I looked over there, and it's like there's it's a huge board that's I'd say eighty percent empty. With just a, it's not like the United States or um, 
the world, the earth, it's got like this weird landmass type thing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not like earth, which is, it might be earth. It might just be like a, a region, but it's like, oh, wow. And he, he made a comment that was really smart. He said, I think they want to leave it open for expansion so that when you can, like some of the games in, without being too spoilery, you open up packets and put stickers on the board and you add new things. And in some of these legacy games, you can actually open up entire continents that you have to stick on the board. So maybe, maybe that's what they're planning on is like, Hey, if you go this way, you open that packet at this Island, this thing, that's interesting. Yeah. I wasn't sure what, what the implication was there of having an, an, an unrecognized um, continent or land mass. Like, is this like a, is it an alternate you know, planet? Are you like, Trying to stop disease from spreading in Westeros or Middle Earth, or right, right? Or is it, uh, or is it like, you know, I mean, the whole theme of pandemic is this, is this disease thing? Is this like dystopian, you know, post-apocalyptic? Where, I mean, even in most of those, the like, the shape of the continents doesn't change much because most of them are set not very far in the future, like a hundred years at most, right? Um, but, and you could you could skin that, couldn't you? Like this game, you could really put it in Westeros. Yeah, I mean, there's no like, there aren't a there aren't a lot of parallels to the real world aside from, you know, you always start in Atlanta where the CDC right. is. Um, but yeah, then I thought the third the third option I thought there is maybe the scope narrows in season two. So like um like Ticket to Ride, although Ticket to Ride doesn't have a global version, but like the different Ticket to Ride games are in different regions. Right. I wondered if season two is like just Europe and then they can do season three with just China or just the That US. could make sense. That'd make a lot of sense. You know, now you said I'm really actually surprised that there isn't a ticket to ride world. It's probably hard to make trains across the ocean. Come on, you could do it. Make boats. <laughs> they do like little tunnels and stuff, right? Yeah, um, that's true. Like over the channels and stuff in Europe. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, going stepping back a little bit, I, I do like um, the co-op is fun because some people don't like the whole, uh, what is it? Uh, you have to work together, but there's only one winner. Um I actually really dig that. I think, uh, oh, Cutthroat Caverns is something like that, where you you know you have to play together. You're forced. The mechanic is that the, at the end there has to be one winner. Uh, another game you're playing recently, and correct me if I'm wrong. Legacies like uh, like that, or oh no, Legendary. Sorry, Legendary. Legendary, where you are definitely playing together, and a lot of times you can't win if you're playing the harder cards. You're like, ah, oh, dang it, it's because people are just swiping up the wrong stuff, but then. You know, if you really want to play an interesting game, you can kill things when you don't need to or try to get the victory points instead, and it throws a monkey into the wrench, but you win. Yeah, I, um, my sister and brother-in-law and I played four or five games of, of Legendary last week while I was staying with them after Gen Con. And, um, yeah, I mean, we could we could do a deep dive on that. I don't know that we necessarily want to in this. Right. In this premiere episode, but um, 
Yeah, I, um, wherever I read or heard this, I mean, I watched the, I watched the episode of Tabletop where they played and I, I got the impression that nobody does the, the competitive scoring at the end. Um, and so we did it in the first game. And then I think in the second and third games, we did the, the bonus round thing where everybody just adds up the total of all their purchasing and attack to see who right. gets the who gets the last mastermind card. This right. is not going to make any sense to people who haven't played this game, but um, yeah, because I think I think for most people it's like, are we working together or are we competing? And And so they just don't, they don't play that. It's like um, some games. Have you ever played Telestrations? I have not, actually. I think uh, Trotsky has that, but I have not read it. It's sort of a combination of Pictionary and Telephone. Okay. Um, everybody has a, a spiral notebook of dry erase pages. And you start by... You get a word from a card, and then you have to draw that word. And when you're satisfied, you pass it to the to your left. And then you get a picture, right, from the person on your right, and then you have to guess it. And then you pass it. And the next person has to take your guess and draw it until it goes around the table. Got it. And so it's very much a, like... After you're done, everybody flips through their book and they're like, okay, I started with this and then it became this. And this person said, you know, that they thought, they apparently thought this was a steak. And they're like, how could you think that was a steak? You know, it's a whole, right, right. It's a big, it's a big party game. I think the big box version plays up to like 12 or 14 people. And there, but there are, in the rules, some kind of scoring mechanic um, that I've literally never used, never seen used. Uh, it's just there in the rules. But it's it's sort of it's sort of contrary to the way the game works. It's like trying to play apples to apples to win. All right. It's really it's just more of a playing the game. Yeah, it's playing the game. It's it's shared experience, right? More than more than strategy or competition. Well, stepping back here a second, going back to the Gen Con topic. Yep. So this year was the 50th anniversary for Gen Con, and um, they had like a little music. It was the first time that I'd seen them use the stadium. It was uh, in Indianapolis. It's the Colt Stadium, uh, Lucas Oil Stadium. And it's the first time I've seen them use that. And I went in there and I was kind of uh, had a little misgivings on it. You know, how can you put stuff in a stadium and it work? Did you get to go over there? Oh, yeah, you did. Because we played that game. Yeah, just that one. That one time. Uh, was that Saturday afternoon? Right. Horizons. I believe it was a uh, bridge simulator bridge mm-hmm. simulator game. The uh, but I thought that that was that worked okay. It was surprisingly I don't know what they use for sound in there, but it was a 
a good sound dampener. I can see that during the games that the players can, you know, I had a lot of gets, the players can still hear pretty good because I heard pretty down, good down there, even with all the noise. But anyway, it was, that was nice. It was huge. It gave it a sense of like, oh, yeah, this is big. And they had their huge museum in there, which if you get to walk through there, that was some amazing piece of history in there. And I just kind of sometimes in this, what seemed like a really janky thing, walking through and seeing these true historical artifacts of gaming was pretty awesome. I, I saw the entire collection of every basic magic card ever. Uh, I think actually not ever up until seventh edition. Um, but the the guy was there who had collected them. Um, I was there with my kids on Sunday and we walked by through and uh, they're a, a little older. Um, they're 20 and 11 and they were walking through with me and we, they can see magic and they appreciated it. And then there was a guy handing an older gentleman. He looked to be about 70 or so. And he was holding out, handing out uh, like leaflets. And I was like, okay, he's, here's the history of magic. I was like, okay, thank you. And that guy actually ended up being the one that it was his collection. And he was a real new, super nice guy, but you know, to, he had them all such presented in such a nice way. And to see like, wow, here's the multiple copies of like black Lotus one with signed and one not signed. And it's all the, the different editions that it had it in. And, um, and then walking over and seeing Gary Gygax's personal player's handbook from Chainmail and from Dungeons and Dragons when he first made it. And uh, just some of these things were like, wow, here's the contract between TSR and Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, you know, setting forth that TSR would own it as a huge contract thing. And there it is right in front of you. Uh, it was just really neat kind of having that perspective. And I thought that was probably the, the one thing that set this Gen Con, you know, apart for me and probably still will and being able to play that bridge simulator too. But overall, something about Gen Con, not to go off too long, but Gen Con's changed a bit over the last 10 years, maybe five, seven years. It's gotten bigger and it's a lot more, I wouldn't say indie, but it's just a lot more breadth of different games. I'd say 10 years ago, Gen Con was about the tentpole people. It's kind of like going to a mall and there are the the cornerstone stores in there and there's a bunch of little ones that move in and out. Gen Con has lost a lot of its tentpole companies, namely Wizards of the Coast. Uh, and they've just kind of replaced them with these smaller ones and people like Paizo have, have come up and whatnot. But it's just different. You would, used to go to Gen Con and there was these massive sculptures and these huge things that would say like Dungeons and Dragons and... It was like, oh my God, this is so, you know, amazing. And now you go there and it's still huge and a big, but it's just kind of like everything, everything everywhere. There's just little game rooms of everything and little pieces, um, more than I could possibly count, but there's not like a, a pure spectacle anymore, um, that they have, at least that I have not seen. Just fine. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, I started attending in 2010, so I don't know that I experienced much. And of course, back then, um, I had no real like uh, exposure to Dungeons and Dragons. To have really, I mean, I would have recognized, but it wouldn't have really meant that much to me. I do remember the first couple of years that I went; like they used to do. They used to do True Dungeon in the right. hall, as, right. I as I recall. And so there was, there was just a big space in the middle of the hall with 
whatever. I mean, I think most of it was is interior, so it was just you know a big black construction of some kind, uh, right? And and yeah, I mean, I can I can recognize that the exhibit hall part of it has expanded over the years. Obviously, now as you mentioned, they're overflowing. I mean, they've been overflowing out of the convention center with events and things for probably since I've started attending. They're doing um, workshops and things in the in the hotels, hotel conference rooms that are nearby. Right. Um, <clears throat> maybe that you, was maybe that's what it is. Expanding into the into the football stadium and uh, and a lot of that stuff. I mean, it's obviously grown over the years. That's that's really all I'm saying with that. But well, uh, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's that um they've done a good job of recognizing these large marquee things. Um there was Hick used to be Hickman's Killer Breakfast and there was the True Dungeon as you mentioned and these um large, huge marquee things. There was the well when Wizards was there again they used to have like the Magic World Championship there. And they'd have this huge stage with just like a massive, you know, like wizards thing shooting out the side and the cameras everywhere and lights. And it was just like, wow, this is a huge television production. Um, and then they'd have a massive, uh, full 30 foot tall Sarah Angel statue in the middle and a beholder down the hall. And then you turn around to your right and there was the entrance to True Dungeon. And you're like, whoa, this is just all so big. And they, and everything was huge all the time. Um, and then I remember turning around and there was the, like the Artemis um, bridge simulator behind you. And it was like, everything was right there everywhere you turned. And now that caused problems back then because it was crowded. There was just tons of, everybody wants to see this. Everybody's there and for pictures. And it was just a big, huge crowds everywhere all the time. And now they were like, okay, true dungeon. Let's move it off site. Let's move it out way over there. And it's got more space and it's better. And people who know about it, go to it because it's sold out and you can't go to it and wander it. So it's not that big a deal. So move it away. And then, okay, um, card games are big and legendary takes up half the card hall. So move it way away. And all of those things are just so spread out now that you don't come in and see like, oh my God, this thing is huge. What's huge now is the dealer hall. I mean, everybody goes there. Okay. That's always big and it's always expanding. But I'm not looking around and saying, okay, what else? What makes me want to like come back to the house at night and say, did you see X, Y, or Z or X, Y, or Z? Because if you don't travel to every hotel, to every stadium, to everything, <laughs> you're going to miss out. Sure. Uh, it's still there. It's just maybe spread out. Right. I don't know. I don't know that I saw the, um, what, whatever that is where they have the big, the big sculptures. I feel like I've seen that every year up until now. I mean, it's possible that it was there and I didn't see it because this is the first year that I didn't do a full sweep of the hall. I mean, I walked around, but because I had a list from Board Game Geek of things that I wanted to check out, I, I sort of had uh, you know targets that I was going toward all the time, and so I didn't do a full sweep. True. One thing about Gen Con too is that I don't want to spend too much time about, it, but I, I think it's worth mentioning is that it, there's a lot of big social aspect to it. Um, we 
we're fortunate to have a lot of friends that are um, gamers and and we get to see them all the time or maybe not all the time, at least once a year, but we can convene in Gen Con and see that. But besides that, even playing in random games and pickup type, quote unquote, pickup games where you get just on event tickets, people are always so nice and it's so interesting and you can get the most uh, classic neck beard or the guy, the kid in the basement <laughs> or the, the high school cheerleader. You can get a lot of different things and they're actually all okay. I mean... We played, uh, uh, what was that game? I want to say it was the, it was the Orcs Must Die game. And we had a fellow to, to, to my left. I think you know who we're talking about. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he was pretty socially awkward. But it was great playing with him. He, it's just that you're all talking the same language. And you're here really enjoying the same kind of thing. You can get groups of friends coming together like you and I. And we'll play, sit down and play a game with complete strangers. Uh, a dad and his daughter playing and you're like, this works. It just, we're all here doing the same thing, having a good time and no one's sitting here like, okay, I got wrangled in to sit down at this thing, you know? So it's really got that social aspect for people who don't have typically what you would think is a social thing. And I really enjoy that. And then now recently we've also been able to come together with our friends as well afterwards and share games and times and little imbibe little things. But that's a really cool part of Gen Con that, you know, you can't really describe to people too, is that, Hey, there's just different there. It's a social aspect, but it just doesn't seem to fit with what that demographic. Yeah. Is. And I think, I mean, I've never been to any other kind of geek, geek convention for, for lack of a better label. I want to go to PAX. Like a, like PAX or a comic con or, Right. Or, or any of those. Um, I will say though, now, now that you mention it, um, this this is probably the year that I've that I've most noticed just almost almost one hundred percent like positive friendly interaction playing games with strangers in events or in the hall, and I think that's probably helped by the fact that I I didn't do any events that weren't cooperative. Right. Right. Like if you get, you know, I've had that sort of spoil a big part of the Gen Con experience for me in years past when um, I go into a competitive situation for a, for a game that I enjoyed that uh, that I could play, you know, even though it's a even though it's a competitive game, even though I may not be doing very well, depending on the group, depending on the setting, I can still enjoy the experience, which is important. It's not something that I succeed at a lot. Um, but doing it in a tournament setting with strangers, like there's, there's almost no room for that. Like your entire purpose for being there is to win. Right. And so I think it, it sets up a scenario where you can much more easily be frustrated and annoyed with strangers instead of friendly and accommodating. So I've only played a few like competitive tournaments there. I surprising because there's so many great ones. I played uh, Ascension tournaments and I played legendary tournaments and I did tip my toes into a magic um, seal. Was it a sealed deck tournament? And, and maybe it's just because of the way it's the Swiss rounds type thing. It's and everybody's still playing, even though they clearly can't win the tournament. It, it It's been pretty positive. I mean, on the whole, Legendary is a perfect example. It's like if you don't get the highest points in the first round, 
if you don't win in the first two or three rounds, you, you just don't even have hope. You lose it, okay, you're in the loser bracket. It's done. And that's half the people. But right. you're still going to be playing. And everybody is still, when you're playing the next game, everyone has lost. So, or won. So you're kind of like, okay, we're resigned to the fact that. And then after the third game, some people have left. So the people who are now, I have lost three games and we're in our third game. And these are all the three-time losers. So it just got a lot more relaxed. Um, my experience with the Magic one was, I really don't want to go too much into it because it's a whole story. But um, I had a judge get really, part of my language, really with me it was a sealed deck tournament and there is a friggin' process that you got to do to open up packs and pass them to the right and draft and put them all down and it's a whole thing that's massive and i didn't know what i was doing there was no explanation period and i was kind of just fumbling around didn't know anybody and the 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 judge came over and he just kind of like started ripping me a new one and grabs my cards and you're ruining everything and you're not doing it right and Oh my God. And then he walked away and then the people on my right and left were like, is this your first time? I said, yeah. And they were like super kind, like, Oh man, he's a jerk. He should have done that. And here's how you do it. And they were just helping me out. They're my competition, but they, especially the ones drafting right and left to me, but they were really kind. And they ended up calling the judge over and saying, Hey, you realize that you're doing this. And he come back like super apologetic. Like, I can't believe I did that. This is the wrong thing to do. I want to encourage you coming. You're the kind of person I want to come. And I can't believe it. And it was just such a positive thing. And then when I sat down and played, I played with a guy who was clearly better than I was. And he, I was just playing the cards down and he was nice he was a young guy. And he said, so, you can play that card, but I'm going to play. That's just leaves you open for here. And I'm going to win next round with this attack. But if you play that one, we'll go a little bit further and like, what? Well, hey, well, I'll play this other card, you know, and he was real cool about it. He kicked my ass eventually, but you know, he was again, encouraging me because he wants me to play and wants me to have a good time and come back and spend more money. So that, yeah. That yeah. Fun. I mean, it's, you know, it's people you're, you're dealing with people. It's funny. It's funny. You say that, that reminds me of, um, something Zahn said last weekend when I stopped through Bloomington about two of our, our other friends who are known for winning a lot. He said that, that they will often inadvertently help you by complaining about strategies that you'll, that they expect you to use against them. All right. If that makes sense, I used a lot of vague, right, right terminology there, but uh, yeah, yeah, and I don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that the competitive tournaments were largely negative because they definitely weren't. Like I did several Ascension tournaments, and those were positive. I just this year doing almost entirely co-op, um, I found all positive experiences all around. I agree, and I and I, and I would prefer co-ops and i um I, hey before we we close the gen con um topic out so this was the first year that you really did a lot of events am i right yeah i mean i've i've done some in years past but this is the first time that i did a lot of like browsing and bought tickets in advance like i've done it at the con when we're all together with my brothers and whoever and say hey do we want to do some of this let's you know, one year we did a bunch of Pathfinder stuff and, um, and whatnot. But 
yeah, this year more than more than in the past. What's your sure. experience with that? I mean, I only did one year where I did like generics or a, a pop-in type thing. So I don't have a lot of experience with like the how easy that is or how often that can work uh, as compared to something like this where you know, like you woke up, I know this time in the morning, you know what you're doing at three, you know, you're doing at 10. I mean, uh, it's sort of, it's, it's different. It's different for sure because you're more um, like you have your day planned around it. Like you were talking about the the museum, we sort of went through that kind of quickly. Now, of course, a lot of that stuff, like I never got really into D and D as a kid, and I, I mean, I never played at all, and um, also never really got into magic. So I can appreciate the significance. You, know, you just lost of, all half of our audience listening to you, right? <laughs> right. right. Um, you know, I mean. Whatever that's that's a whole, that's a whole <laughs> but of course I can I can appreciate the significance of Gary Gygax's original you know uh, journals and and things like that that they had on display and of course if you tell me that that every magic card is in there like I understand what that means right right even though even though I didn't you know I I played like three games of magic in sure sure. Um, this is that appreciation that there's something unique here. Yeah, and and of course, um, you know, if if you know me at all, I'm a, I'm a person that has an appreciation for history. But anyway, uh, we we sort of rushed through that because I wanted to get some food before the next event we had scheduled at three. Right. Um, that that uh, starship sim- simulator started at noon, ended at one thirty, so we had like. We had a little bit of time, but I'm like, if we're gonna, you know, find some some rest of the group and meet up and go out somewhere, like one solid hour, which we ended up not doing, which was fine. But, um, yeah, having having the events purchased in advance changes the changes the con in that way, which is not necessarily bad. I mean, there there's definitely time have been times in years past where. We're almost wandering around going, what haven't we done? What what do we want to see? Who wants to, do you guys want to try and find an event? And of course, by then things are sold out. Right. Um, but I mean, we've also been able to get into events that were sold out. Like the, the first year that we did the AEG big, oh, big yeah, game right, night, right. Um, you know, people... People waited in line. It was kind of like a, like a, not quite Black Friday, but like a, like the premiere of a movie or something, um, or like um, two of the two of the guys in our group sat down to play uh, what was that game called? Chrono Chronomaki. I was going to call it Chronomancy. Oh, Chronomancy. Yeah, he won. Yeah, Chronomaki. I think that's what. Um, and they both went and. And grab generics to sit down with us because there were there were seats left, right? And, and a lot of times that's um, that's what happens. Like if they have enough people to to um, to run the demos and enough copies of the game, like maybe they're they were conservative with how many slots they they left available, right? And so you can get into stuff that's sold out if they have the resources to accommodate you. I think for me over the over the years, 
I've waxed and waned with different ways with events. My first year, I just wandered for two days and was like overwhelmed. And the second year, I got some generics. And then the third year, I went completely my like other way of organization where I have to do everything. And it was packed from morning to evening with events. You know, I barely had time for lunch. Like, oh yeah, I guess I guess I have to plan plan in food in here, Um, like all the way to midnight. And then I did that for several years and now I've kind of gone back and forth with it, but now I'm, I've landed on this whole, um, more laid back, um, definitely pick like two or three things that I really want to do. And that way I can get real excited for, you know, the, the event registration day and make sure I click and get those two of the threes that I really want. Um, and then, you know, say go, um, and then the rest of the time be really free with it. And just have like, oh, I, this is interesting and that would be fun and this is cool. I'd like to play that X, Y, or Z. Um, but the way I kind of see it now is that, uh, like, say, for example, this year I've had, like, say, three events a day, maybe four. Um, and it's not terribly expensive. Like, I wouldn't miss the the bridge simulator thing. It was like 20 some dollars maybe. But the other events are like two to four bucks. So if... You know, I, I didn't have anybody else I'm playing with and it's just an okay game and I'm really friggin' tired, then I don't mind skipping it. But I always felt I have a lot of we have a lot of friends, I think, that I see walking around, especially seeing them this year. And they're like, I saw it uh, first day. I walked through the whole thing and then now it's all what am I going to do? Um, and I don't really feel like, you know, being social and walking in and asking if I can play. So my way to beat that is to just have a bunch available already signed up. And then if I don't want to do it or I want to do something else, then I can just drop them. You know, it's kind of like having it instead of not having it. Well, I mean, we had, we had two guys in our group who were first timers. Right. And that's always, that's always different. I mean, I, I think you made this remark about one of the, one of the costumes that you see, like when you, when you've been going this many years in a row, like the things that are amazing and remarkable the first year, like the big, the big magic card city and some of that stuff, you're like, Oh yeah, that magic card city's there again. It's it's the same thing every year. You're like, Oh look, it's a, it's a life-size TARDIS or two sides of one, which is enough to get a picture in front of. Right. Um, And like, you know, four or five years of that, you're like, oh yeah, this is where they set up the, the Doctor Who for some reason. Right. It's not, not really. It's a weird thing about, about Gen Con where you get some of this stuff that's like very peripherally related. I'm like, what, what is this? This is definitely going back to your, you know, sort of question about, about the events. This is for sure the first year that I've, um, bought tickets to events for games I've never played. Um, oh, right. Yeah. The the closest parallel is when we did Pathfinder stuff. We were like, we want to attend these these sessions or, or workshops to learn more about this game because it's, it's Pathfinder. It's like D&D. It's, there's so much to it. Um, but this is the first year where I thought, instead of trying to pick up a game in the exhibit hall, with people all around you, with a with an exhausted, uh, you know, demoer right. who right. who might not be, you know, and and that's hit or miss. Like, 
if, if it's a shift or not. If it's a small enough game, you might be talking to the guy who made it. Love it. Yeah, love that. Um, if it's uh, if it's something by one of the big publishers like AEG, the guy who made the game isn't even there. Like AEG publishes games for probably thousands of like a book publisher. Right. Um, and so all of their game demoers are just part-time employees there to to explain these games and so they you know they get the terminology mixed up and 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 all of that's fine um i just this year thought i would try you know spend a few bucks and get a get a focused um block of time to really experience what the game is about what it's like um that didn't it didn't entirely work when we did um Orcs must die because we we still ran out of time running into the, right. to the next group. But I think you but know, we did play with the guy that made it. That's true. We did we did get to meet the the creator, and I don't think I don't think I walked away from that experience um, not not having fully experienced what that game was about. Right. You know, I like I wasn't confused about it. We sat there for. What an hour and a half? Yeah, it was a good time. I mean, it was a good long time, but I mean, Some, it didn't feel long. It was felt like the game was being played. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, I understood the game, even though we didn't get to finish. I, I totally agree. And I think that we were close, right? Yeah, we were. We were pretty close. I mean, I think we could see what our next few rounds were going to look like, and I still want to. I still want to play that game again, but I don't want to pay the hundred seventy-five for it. Or by way, like two hundred. Yeah, yeah, we. We demoed between between the couple that we played. Now I did buy Hero Realms, but I also demoed that uh, Massive Darkness um, game. I did demo that one on the exhibit hall floor, but a, a couple of those like cooperative sort of sort of dungeon crawler. Um, I mean, Massive Darkness is compared to Zombie Side. If you played that, right, I think right, I played yeah. it once. Yeah. Um, Orcs Die is is a is not a dungeon crawler. It's a sort of tower defense, but still the same sort of thing where you've got random tiles and miniatures and all that stuff, and all those things really drive up the box price of True. the game. Which is, you know, I mean, I get it. I'm not saying it's it's not worth it. I understand that manufacturing is expensive. It just right. m- makes the barrier to entry kind of high. Like, yeah, this this might be good, but unless I get at least half a dozen plays a year out of it, like I can't I can't drop one hundred and fifty dollars. I totally agree. Totally on one agree. Game. Let's move on from games. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, we come back around at some point, but uh, let's go into the thing that just happened recently, which was last night's season finale of Game of Thrones. So you got to be here with some friends to watch that, right? Yeah, I was uh, I was traveling back back home from my uh, my sister and brother in laws that I stayed with, and so I stayed in I stayed in Bloomington for the night. I don't nobody nobody up here where I live watches Game of Thrones, so I normally watch it on my own. But since I was passing through town over the weekend, I was like, mm-hmm. I'll take a half day Monday morning, and, uh, and we can we can watch it together and. I can't say I can't say people, that I've ever people. watched Game of Thrones with other people. 
just the way just the way I've watched it. I mean, I know that we have several of our friends that who used to do that. I think you might have been included in that with Pat yeah, and some other. That fellas. was that that started before I moved because it's been it's been a little over th- three years since I moved. But for the first couple seasons, um, before a couple of those guys moved, before I did, and then I did, and one of the other guys did, um, we'd have. We have about half a dozen people. Um, I mean, our one friend has a whole a room in his house set up like a theater with uh, tiered seating and whatnot. Right, that's Pat, right? Yeah, and so it was a it was an ideal um, sort of setup for doing that. Right? We'd bring snacks, and we'd have a whole uh, the the conversations that we have now in in group chat we would have in person. Right. And I was able to do that last night. Um, Super cool. So talk about the episode itself. We had a lot of things. It was being the season finale. I think uh, there was some highlights to hit through. But I uh, I guess the oh, topic I want to talk about with this here is not just the episode. Well, I'd really like to go through the episode real quick and see what some of your thoughts on just this specific contained episode is. But Are you? Are you- so before we before we jump into that, are we are we talking spoilers? No spoilers. Oh, that's a good question. Um, let's talk spoilers. Of- so if you're not here, if you're listening here now, uh, as mentioned before, there's um, minutes going to be in the show notes, and this is going to be a laden with Game of Thrones spoilers. We're going to speak openly about it um, because this will be published after several weeks after. Um, yeah, hopefully if, you'd watch if, it, but if, if, if you don't want to do it, skip ahead. Online, you, you still don't know, right? What's happening? So yeah, get out if you don't want spoilers. Uh, you've been forewarned. Uh, <laughs> okay, so last night's episode specifically, and then we'll go to a quick uh, or maybe quick um, overall general topic that I've got to ask. So we we saw all of the people come together, all of the peeps. Yeah. Uh, they don't even know if there there was a few like Tormund and stuff. There were these little side characters, that, and then when they weren't showing the main peeps, there was the little I'll go ahead and say fairly boring part with up in Winterfell um, mm-hmm. thing. So they kind of had those were the two things, and that was really it. Uh, but those were great. I mean, it's, it's it's amazing to see. Oh my gosh! See, I didn't realize that they've never met or look. That person's there with that person. I've never seen them in the same shot till now. And then we had the whole Winterfell thing with Littlefinger. And I was waiting, uh, I'll leave my comments for the end, but I was waiting for him to die pretty much the whole season. Um, and then the big thing with the, the season ending hoopla of the undead, uh, those, those, my general thoughts in the episode was, I mean, it's pretty cool seeing everybody. It gave me everything that I wanted to have out of it. Um, I think where there was some, comments people saying about like oh there's not a lot of surprises or not a lot of twists and since martin has not been you know writing these and these are the writers then the whole feel of the show has changed from like shock value and oh my god and what's happening and that water cooler talk i don't know if there's anything really water cooler worthy of this season finale um but everybody who watched it was like yeah okay that's supposed to happen and yeah, okay, that's that's what we expected, and that's the thing, and that's cool, and that's what I wanted to see. But I don't think there's anything that I went on, went up and said, "Oh my God, let's talk about this." Oh my God, it's red wedding. Um, but I believe it was you who I'd said heard earlier say that hey, this is when we finally have resolutions. 
This is the, you know, we've had all these things and all this angst and all this heartbreak and just hard things to get through. And you're like, okay, now it's time to finally have it. The ending is the only time to have it. Cause once the ending's over, it's over. You can't have that anymore. Um, and I personally believe that season seven was a lot of that resolution, that feeling of vindiction, that coming together with, okay, we're all here. We're all in one spot. We're finally in, in the thing. We're getting, resolving all these ties. Now season eight will be the kick your ass, uh, no holds barred. Everybody can die. Uh, whatever happens happens type season. So they're given a seven, I feel, and it's what do you think it is? And then eight will be, okay, all bets are off. Now you had your thing back in season seven. We got people together. We, you know, Danny and John are there. We all knew it was happening. Finally resolved. Uh, Sanson, little finger resolved. There's no loose ends really left. Um, so now all bets are off. And I think that's where the writers wanted to be going into season eight. And I'm fine with that. It didn't make for an exciting season per se, and it didn't make this episode particularly exciting for me, but I liked it because I feel like, hey, here's my season. Season seven was for me. Okay, now the rest is going to be whatever it's going to be. What are your thoughts? Oh, man, there's a lot there. Right? Um, I'm, I'm reminded, although to just to just to further alienate myself from, from, from nerd crowds. I was not a huge Harry Potter fan. Man, you are like going down. Right. Was it D and D right. magic and like now Harry Potter? Let's, all right. let's just get, let's just get all this out of the way. But <laughs> I, 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 I do remember, um, hearing or, or reading some, I mean, I did read all the books. You know, if I her. find out that you played football in the past, then we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> yeah, no, right. no, no sports. All right. Um, the audiobook. I mean, I'll, I'll probably just usually say that I read a book, even if I did audiobook, because sure. a lot of times I, I can't remember. I, right, right. At least one of the uh, Song of Ice and Fire I read on the on the Kindle, and at least one I did audiobook. I don't remember how many of which or what. I just know that I burned through them so fast that I don't remember all the details after like the first or second book, like, um, one of our other friends, but, um, I remember a review or, or conversation somewhere about the, um, the penultimate Harry Potter film, um, and how it's, it was received sort of with some level of disappointment and I think that's sort of what we're seeing here. Like, it's not not that the season was disappointing; it was incredibly satisfying, which um, I've mentioned before is kind of unusual on this show. I mean, this yeah. show has been uh, throughout really like a few good, high, satisfying moments that are almost always accompanied with some kind of almost soul-crushing, like. Borderline masochistic sequences and, and images. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, you know, we're, we're we're full spoilers here, so you know, Red Wedding. Uh, I mean, even going back to to the first episode of Bran getting pushed out that window, right? Um, you're like, what is this? What am I? What did I? What did I sign up for? Here? Right. Um, that was incest followed by. 
kid being pushed out the window, right? Yeah, twin, twin, twin sibling incest, twin incest. Right. Um, and so, as as you said, we're we're now getting to a point where you're trying to wrap all of this up, and you get a you get a story this big. I mean, the the books were really long, but the show has has been going on seven years. Like for a lot of people, it's a I mean, for most people, even even people up around our age or older, it's still a if you've been watching it along, it's still a it's been around for a for a portion You're, of your life. Nearly a decade, right? Yeah. Um and so it's always gonna be like bittersweet at best. Right? Because even if even if everything about the ending is satisfying, it's still over. Right. Um, but, you know, there's, there's no way around that. Like, the writers have to you know, do the best that they can, and, you know, you, you can't please all the people. Yeah, um, that's for sure. W- while I was watching the, uh, the finale, after they... After they do the big, the big reveal of, um, of John's parentage, with the with the nice um, with the convenient narration, um, as as somebody in in Reddit mentioned, you, you just put the 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 nearly omniscient character in a room with the most curious character, right. And so now they're just like Google of Westeros. Right. Um, and they know it all now. I mean, he doesn't the, even need to go to be a maester anymore. He can just like sit there with Bran and Bran, tell me everything. Just tell me, just tell me everything. And of right. course, you know, they, it was a, it was a well-made scene. I mean, I think um, from the point I forget when, probably when the scene opened, like when, when Sam opens the door, I mean, I, I had predicted that something was going to happen on the ship because they had that little conversation with, uh, John Daenerys and, uh, Sir Jorah. And I was like, oh, well, Jorah doesn't want her to go on the boat because that's where John's going to be. He's still, he's still holding out hope. Jorah. And poor Jorah. Poor Jorah. But. Um, I mean, at what point did he ever have a chance with her? Was there ever a point? I don't know if I don't know if they they do this in the show, but in the books they make a. I think there is like one one scene where he explains it in the show because he's a he's a little bit different in the in the books. I've um, maybe a, I've heard people say it's more creepy. I don't remember for sure if I would say it's more creepy, but he has a. He has a story about his past where he was married to a um, he was married to a woman who was how does he describe it like she wanted all the finer things okay and and he was not really in a position to provide those things he, he did his best and it's part of how he ended up um, banished arrested and banished was for poaching or, or, or something like that. But it's it's said in the books that his wife looked a lot like 
Daenerys. Oh, okay. Which is part of why he had such a such an infatuation and, and in the in the show sense of loyalty toward right. her. I mean, I mean, I um, get it. The the dude was around Amelia the whole time, right? Right. And yeah, I mean, he especially in the early seasons, he's her only. Like he's the only Westerosi over there with her. You know, she's surrounded by Dothraki and slaves and all of that stuff, and he's the one. You know, <laughs> the one white guy over there. Right, right. I mean, it's just he, and, and the, I get that, I guess. But she, maybe it was just the, the chemistry that there was no between. I don't know who plays Jorah, the fella, and Amelia. That, it, and it could have been maybe just the visual age difference between the two. Yeah, it, I mean, it, I, I mean, their relationship. That. Their relationship was always paternal at best. At best, yeah, right. But, but when he said, like, but I love you, and I was like, oh, that is just so not the right thing. It never felt like, I mean, it was strained in all sorts of the ways. And I can't remember when he said that, but that's when he went away because he had his, his disease. But it's like she just kind of said, there like, uh, well, sorry, Dad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it was... I think the way that the way that it seemed to us was the way that they intended it and the way it was portrayed, the way it was acted. Okay. Um, it was always supposed to be pretty clear to the audience that he loves her and she doesn't return the, his the feelings the same way. Now, he is now I I don't know the books, but I know on on the shows to to put that up for you, I have not read the books. Um he is an honorable guy. He's like super. He's second to John, probably in the the real knight. I mean, the sir is the right word for him. Well, I, I mean, he's got some shady things. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, ultimately. Really? Um. So, I, I don't know where they're going to go with that. I mean, they. I don't want to. We we can go on on this whole like what's going to happen next season type thing, but. I don't know where they're going to go with Jorah. I don't know where they can go with him. They can do the whole like love triangle thing, but that just does not seem interesting at all. And if the writers went stooped to that, it seems like ugh, it's just not the way to go with the show. When you've only got like seven episodes left and we're going to, we have, it is a loose end ish, but I don't think anyone's interested in learning more about that or delving into what's Jorah loving her. Bah. Right. Yeah, I'm 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 inclined to agree and what I was thinking earlier when you were talking about the Winterfell storyline of the finale right. where it's like um your so, buddy Sansa in, 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 in terms her. of the story like what did what did Lin- Littlefinger have left to do? Right? His he was he was done. Yeah. Basically, he's he's up in Winterfell, he's too far from you know the the council that was going on down there um to be to be influencing everything like his his big move was all of the stuff last season and and the season before with with Sansa and the veil vale and retaking Winterfell from um the Boltons and so 
So now him being there is just like, unless they were really going to push the romance between him and Sansa, there's a weird... That's the same not, Jorah thing. It's the same thing with yeah, Jorah. Yeah, it's, right? it's not that different from the Jorah thing, except in this case, there's a direct connection with Sansa being Catelyn's daughter. Yeah. That makes it, makes it extra creepy. Extra not creepy. That, I mean... Uh, I mean, know. I couldn't get your mom, but man, I want you. Right. Littlefinger's character has been creepy almost from the beginning, right? That's just that's just who he is. He's a he's a manipulative schemer, right? Um, I'm not I'm not entirely satisfied with the idea of um, of Arya sort of out scheming him. Although I do sort of appreciate as much as, you know, I'll go on record as being very much not a Sansa fan. Um, really? Are you sure? I thought you really liked Sansa. <laughs> right. I mean, it's first impressions. You I know, never liked I, her as Jean Grey either, so I'm on your side. I read her, um, you know, her character in the books in this in this family, you know, this this noble, you know, Ned Stark family who, you know, all of them are flawed in some way, but, you know, they, they don't have a headsman, right? Because the man who passes sentence should swing the sword. You know, they're this incredibly honorable family and you've got this one daughter who is 100% self-serving, right? Completely self-focused. Like the, the close second in that family is there were, there were a couple moments where I really didn't like Catelyn. Right. And it's, and it's when, it's when Bran falls and she takes it out on John. That, yeah, right. I mean, she, they, that was good. Um, it's good for her character and everything, but I agree. Yeah. And they, and they, they portrayed that in the show, but it's not, it wasn't like Sansa's flaws. It was this sort of jealous maternal, sort of thing that made sense. And, you know, Sansa's gone through a redemption arc, but she spent so much time, like, chasing Joffrey and, you know, betraying Arya. And, of course, that was a long time ago, but it's still, like, still there in the back of my mind. Yeah, no, I mean, actually, I think that was only, like, two seasons. I think that happened. Marjorie came around in, like, three. But... It's, it was so impactful that you really despised her so much for seasons one and two that she was second only to Joffrey in your bad taste mouth of people that you don't like and 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 there's more and there's more in the books with her um, her marriage to Tyrion that's a little bit heartbreaking because you know he's he's very sort of patient and caring with her in this in this culture where you know, wives are getting essentially raped on their wedding night. Right. Kind of stuff. And she still like wants nothing to do with him. Anyway, I didn't want to get deep into that, but, um, I, I did appreciate the, the, the concept of her taking all of those little, you know, proverb lessons that, that little has been giving her this season and, probably in seasons past um, and, and turning that against him. Yeah. 
I can I, see the combination, though they they don't show it on screen. It's sort of a weird. Um, you could almost call it unreliable narrator, except this show doesn't have narration. Um, but the scenes where um, Arya is threatening Santa last yeah. week, they're that sort of close equivalent. We're like, they're probably has to be some other level of communication happening between them, either off screen or something for them to have schemed this together. Because I don't see, I don't see either of them on their own outsmarting Littlefinger. Yeah, I agree with that. And that was something I was going to mention is that some of that was just, I think us and fans talking about it offline and Reddit or in other, other forums like, sure. Oh, this is this, and this is the possibility. And, you know, it's kind of rabid from week to week when you're waiting that extra six days to get the next episode. So you're like, Oh, here's the theory. Here's the theory. Here's the theory. Um, and we all talk it out to death. So we kind of have our own off screen when we find out X happened, then that theory is confirmed and all the things that go with it. Um, because and one thing I, somebody's offhanded comment had made was that, Hey, we all assume that the theory of Sansa and Arya were playing him. That's the one that, that that's the theory that won out and that's the, what happened, but we don't know that. I mean, we really don't. We, we could have been that that was straight up what it was. And then Bran comes in off screen and it's like, Oh, by the way, I just, you know, WYSIWYG this. And, um, yeah, he's, he's a bad guy playing you guys. And like, Oh shit like five minutes before that meeting. And we don't know that. Right. And I think that is due to the, what to use your words, bad narration there. They didn't, they, they intentionally let us down a path that was confusing and out of character for a lot of these two people. We don't know why we've made up our own minds as to why, but there's literally nothing in the show itself that says, this is what they did to figure out Littlefinger. This is how it happened. And why this last big surprise moment, when we're going to kill you happened. It just did. You know, and I don't like that. That that was a little poor writing and it ended. I was like, okay, so one of these multiple theories happened off screen and I don't know, it it could chalk it up and I probably am chalking it up to the whole okay, we've got a shortened season, let's just do what we can do. But that yeah, whole I mean, Winterfell scene this whole season was superfluous. It was it was pretty slow. I mean in a season where they're bringing us all of the, all of the big CGI spectacle, to go to, you know, this very small set of these two sisters and this one guy, whatever vying for power or whatever, like it's very. Um, I, don't, I don't really want to say uninteresting, but it really is uninteresting compared to what else is going on. It totally was. And it, and it took place over like six episodes that didn't need to be six episodes. It really didn't. There was no story literary thing or anything. Martin wasn't writing it. And there wasn't a lot of character X stuff that we're missing out on literally could have happened in one episode. It could have been, she comes in, doesn't trust Aria. Aria says, no, I'm cool. Uh, Littlefinger's a jerk. And then they kill Littlefinger. I mean, that, that's all we really needed. And it could have happened yeah. in one episode and spent the whole episode or three quarters of it on that, make it a full impact. And then we get the rest of the season two, more interesting stuff. I wonder if 
I mean, we've gotten to a point here where, you know, this season is all about the characters coming together. I mean, everybody's been waiting since the damn dragons hatched for Danny to come to Westeros. And I think almost from the first episode, she and John meet up, we've gotten to a point where most of the action is happening in one place, right? maybe two, where in seasons past, we had to like, we had to check up on all five storylines to see where everybody is. Are you saying that the writers don't know how to switch with one, just I one story, one perspective? I mean, there might be, there might be a degree of that. Like, we're like, oh, what's, what's happening that people really care about? That's all north of the wall, but we can't do the whole episode north of the wall. I guess we'll mix in some of these Sansa and Littlefinger scenes. You know, something, if I have a fan thing that I'd love to request and shout out to the writers would be that um, since they're writing now and not Martin, or I'd say it to Martin, is that I'd love more Night King. And I don't mean like, you know, more episodes of him standing brooding up there on his horse or now dragon on Viserion. I want more like, first off, I'd love for him to freaking speak. Like in a sentence, it's not just like die or something. But mm. I'd like to to see they had a, the whole season of Bran finding out about it, you know how they were created and the the, the children. But it just it wasn't really enough for me. You saw how he, he came about and he's this thing. But okay, is he just like a pure evil thing? It just seems weird that it's very one dimensional. You have. Um, everybody else is so rich and so his history and there's such a big storytelling for every single character. <clears throat> but the Night King, the main character, <clears throat> excuse me, the main bad guy, there's nothing. He's just very flat, evil. He's evil. He's dead. I'm like, surely there's something. Okay, they, Martin teased us with the children and, you know, the the man and how they were created to stop men, but... That's it. There's just like, okay, bad guys. And that's my only worry about next season is that there's, it's just very, it's going to be too straightforward. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, that was, that was one of my initial thoughts when you, um, after your, after your initial sort of summary, um, because after the, after the narrated, you know, love scene with, with John and Danny, where, Bran explains for any of the viewers or both of the viewers who don't have internet that, uh, that John is a, is a Targaryen. Um, you go to this sequence of, you know, them, them breaking the wall. And I honestly was bored. Right. Um, I mean, it, I get it. Like the wall is a big deal. Like I appreciate the significance of it, but I remember reading, I'm pretty sure it's a quote from from Martin, possibly another author, about, you know, people ask him why why his story, why there aren't more, why the books don't have more of the monsters. Right? You're like, you set up, like from the pilot, you set up these creatures north of the wall as this threat. Right. And then you spend seven years, well, six years with a few with a few moments. I mean, it was a long time before anybody 
really saw them, like before the Night King and the army and before all this stuff with Bran. But, like, it didn't become, you know, uh, it didn't become part of the main story or the main action until this season. And so you have, sure. you have six years of just people arguing and scheming. And I think that was the, that was the quote from Martin is that the, the stories with like the, the evil personified bad guys have been done and are kind of played out, but there's so much, there's so much more, so much, um, maybe richness or I don't know what, what word I'm looking for here, but, um, like a potential for darkness in people and people's interaction, which of course sort of illuminates a little bit the the kind of the kind of mindset or worldview of a guy who would write this story. Yeah. You know, with all of this betrayal and rape and incest and all of this <laughs> sort this of darkness. darkness. Yeah. But but in terms of in terms of a narrative and a story like you go from the beginning of the episode, the first third of it, first act, I guess. And my my joke when we were watching it was so much face acting. Oh yeah, because staring because the camera and... just goes. You know, Cersei is looking at Jamie, and Jamie's looking at Tyrion, and Tyrion's looking at John, and John's looking at Danny, Danny's looking at Jorah, and like it just looks looks past. And glares, and I mean, from when the when the council starts, and Euron stands up and starts being a forum troll. Um, <laughs> nice. It like they show everyone else's faces, and they're like, "What? Really? Like the two the two queens, the 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 one who sleeps with her brother, and the one with the dragons are here at this meeting. There are dragons here, and this guy's making." dwarf jokes right right and and all of those you know very talented actors express all of that with with their with their express with, with their expressions with their faces, their faces and the looks and the the cinematography and all of that stuff i kind of wanted so then, i kind of wanted to be pulled the camera to be pulled back in a lot of those conversations just I mean, to see I mean, you never got to see like, what is it? Uh, Cersei talking to Danny. You saw Cersei talking, and then it'd switch over to Danny talking, and then it'd switch over to John talking. But it wasn't. Mm. I, I wanted to see them talking to each other. Like you saw Cersei and Tyrion talking to each other. You know, and the mountain was next to intimidating and being part of that scene with people. But it, if you watch that episode again, there's not a lot of where the camera pulls back and watches them, and they're all talking to each other because. Because it seems a little awkward that they're just kind of sitting there. There's nothing in there. It's just empty right in the middle. Um, I know that we we watched a little bit of um, not not necessarily behind the scenes, but the like creator interviews, right? Yeah, at the end of the episode where they said it took them a long time to shoot that sequence because they had to have everybody there. Oh yeah, like they couldn't. It was too difficult for scheduling. Well, I mean, I'm sure the scheduling was difficult, but just in terms of acting, like it was, it it didn't work unless 
the the other characters that these actors were supposed to be reacting to weren't actually there. Okay, what do you mean? Like like the people they they recorded them separately or? Well, no, they they did them all together, right? Like they couldn't do. They didn't, or either they couldn't, or they didn't want to, like, film Cersei talking without, you know, Kit Harrington and Amelia Clark there. Okay. Like on a green screen or something. Okay. It made the, you know, it made the the reactions and the and the emotions more genuine for having all the cast there. Right. Maybe they um, just needed like more cameras because there was so many. Maybe. I mean, my my first assumption about the tightness of the shots was prob- was just probably so that in a what's what's still television um, scale, they wanted to they wanted the audience to be able to see the expressions. Mm, I guess so you get a little bit closer they, there and do that. They had to, tighter they shots. Had to get, a, get a little tighter with the shots. Um, so I was a little disappointed with the no Clegane bowl. Yeah, yeah, it was cl- it was close. Yeah, but um, anyway, to 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 just to finish wrap up my my thought there about the the sort of bookends of the episode. Oh the, yeah, the the first act is so much about the people and their their prejudices and their histories and all of that stuff conveyed with as few words as possible to. To the end, well, to the to the big to the big reveal, the like, hey, in case anybody's still confused, John's a Targaryen, <laughs> right? Like blatantly, and, they're just saying it here, and then and then to spend like ten minutes on like a couple of Tormund shots and a bunch of CGI. Yeah, I think they wanted a staple ending because, and they weren't being very creative with it. I mean, I get that that's, um, you know, it's like the big, not that, but the, like the dragons fighting the zombies has been the thing everyone's been expecting since the dragons hatched. But then you see it and you're like, yeah, I mean, it's cool, but, you know. That that goes it, back to exactly what I was just saying is that. I just don't think that the Night King is interesting. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. okay, cool, that's cool, but you just there's no emotional impact to that. They come in, they're taking down the wall, they're walking in. Okay, just like any other zombie movie, you just don't care about the zombies, and they're just not. And these guys particularly aren't that big a deal. There's nothing to care about. Go back to King's Landing. Let's see some of that drama again because these guys right. I got Cause, investment in. Because there's nothing like you've got. You've got varying degrees of good against pure evil. Like it's, you know, you compare it to the other iconic story with that framework, which is Lord of the Rings, and even even Sauron, who you never see, is is so he's so discussed, he's so talked about, and and his presence felt in his lieutenants and his you know, the, the things that he controls in the story, um, that you, you get the, the, um, the threat of it. Right. The dark Lord. I mean, that's the same with the emperor, right? 
for Star Wars. Yeah, he wasn't there yeah. for a lot of times, but you know, it's still there's the dark side and there's this thing. And you're right, they, t- they talk about him, and and they for most of this show, they don't really talk terribly about him. I mean, there's always the stuff of the North, but it's still you know here and there. But I mean, it's a really good parallel there that I didn't think about with Lord of the Rings is that yeah, he's always you know Sauron is always ever present and ever a threat, you know. But in, but instead of being this sort of, you know, like, um, this sort of, like, devil archetype sort of thing, the Night King is, is essentially just another, another power, you know, compared to, he's just a greater power than, um, than any of the others. He's the equivalent of when Danny showed up with dragons, and you're like, oh, well, our all of our fighting with just normal dudes and horses is now irrelevant because you know, dragons. Because dragons. Right. I mean, Except- Jamie changes from like, I got this because I'm strategic mastermind to, what, get out, I'm, we're done. Right. And except except Danny had a whole had a whole, you know, character arc through the whole show and all of her missteps and and mistakes and and uh, good intentions and and all of those things where. Yeah, the Night King and the zombies are like. Yeah, we've been waiting for these guys the whole time, but when it comes down to it, there's nothing interesting about them at all. You know what they needed to do, and it was a huge missed opportunity, was to pepper in people. Like, there was, our friend Brian might have said something about how in the books they talk about how, you know, mothers had to fight children that were zombies, and there was that, like, that was a huge point about it. And But there's, I saw the uh, giant in there, and I kept thinking, oh, is that the giant that we knew before? Is this somebody that we're familiar with? And that makes it a little bit more interesting that Hey, we're fighting our dead, you know, brethren yeah, or people and, who were. But they we didn't could, do that. We could still see some of that next season. I mean, we've still got, you know, Benjamin could come back again as a zombie. Um, there's still uh, Craster and all of his wives. Oh, true. So, but you, that, that'd be really pulling to the well. That's Gilly's family, um, right? I mean, but I, you need to have some main characters to have. Again, if what I, I guess what I'm asking for is the Night King needs to have emotional investment. Like you have to say, like why he's evil or or why these guys need to be defeated and why you want to want to have that. Why they're scary or uh, you know, just as an audience, you don't have anything. I mean, frick, you know, you probably cheer on Cersei against the Night King because. Yeah, she's bad, but you know about her, and there's character to her, and that's interesting. But well, yeah, I mean, it's essentially, it's essentially a, it's a zombie story, right? Like, right, the Night King and and the and the Whites or White Walkers. The terminology gets confusing to me because I think it's confusing to most people. Right. Um, I, I think I figured that it, out, by the way. I think the 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 Whites are the zombies, like the the army. And I think, wait, wait, no, the whites are his lieutenants. Damn it, I had it yesterday. And and they're 
like they're called white walkers and then people call them whites and oh oh that's it the whites are the the army the white walkers are the his lieutenants that sit on the on the, the horses and then there's the night king okay um but any but anyway they're essentially a plague right it's like we we were talking earlier about pandemic right like that's and somebody made that joke like while while um Euron is off picking up the uh, the gold company. Like they could come back, and Westeros just be one hundred percent zombies. Like that's what that's what the Night King's goal is, and it's a little bit like um, it's a little bit like the undead in Warcraft, right? Where they they spread the blight south from Northrend, mm-hmm. except the the Lich King. Arthas had had backstory that made him interesting, and he had he had um, maybe that's what I he, want with with the Night King is I want an Arthas. He he had an evil influence that was, and of course, in, if you if you know any of the um, Warcraft Azeroth lore, it's a very common thread running through it where you know you have a you have a good character who spends some time in a in an awkward location or something for a long enough time and then some some thing like there are there are a group of of elder gods on Azeroth that are they're, they're the equivalent of Cthulhu and you know those will will sort of whisper in the minds of this in the mind of a good person for a while, and then they are corrupted and turn evil. And it's it's a little bit of a trope, but it's still more interesting than a guy that just shows up. And for me, I might be not remembering enough of um, his backstory that we got through Bran because the the Hodor reveal just like blasted from my mind anything that happened before <laughs> right. that, right? Because it's so tragic, right? Um, I, I I know that that season, and I think that's one that may be worth me going back and watching again and seeing, you know, exactly what that was about. Maybe that's what I'm missing. Maybe I just didn't get enough of that. Maybe the books did say more about it, but I, I just I can't remember. I think you're saying right there. I know that I mean, the I... children of the forest were fighting the men, and they created these guys to fight the men, and then the zombies just started turning on everybody. Okay, is that it? Okay. So they're just, like you said, a disease that, oh, you know, chemical warfare that went the other way. Right. Doesn't seem very interesting. Well, here's the next season being having some of that and that we see that a lot more involvement. I'd love to see every episode not just be like, oh, look, hey, hey we're going to show the, the death, the dead this time. Oh, my gosh, this is the dead. Um, and it be... You know, some every episode, something cool, something super cool. We, like, there's so much just backstory with like his lieutenants. Holy cow, he's got dudes that. What's the hierarchy of the zombies? What's going on here? These guys are are they kings? I mean, we go back to the Lord of the Rings when you were saying how, you know, he's got the the nine and they were kings. There's a whole history and a story about that, and I, I can go somewhere and look it up. Even there's something there, but with the the zombies, there's just just not enough. Yes. So yeah, when they like, come in, it's if, like bleh. If you're if you're comparing authors, 
Tolkien was a linguist, and probably, though though they didn't use this term in his day, he was probably a word world builder. Right. Right, because his whole, I mean, the Lord of the Rings is is barely a story. Right. It's more just a recording of events, and so and so he gave all of this stuff life you know he wrote backstories and you know this whole Cimmerillion thing which is like um you know somebody it's funny to go back to gen con the, the guys at the gen con auction were selling somebody's copy of the Cimmerillion and the auctioneer said it's like the bible and the oh, yeah, auctioneer right. was like he's like what do you he's like no you're thinking of c.s lewis and he's like no i mean it's written like the the first couple books of the Bible where it's just a bunch of names, right? And um, where where Martin is is definitely much more of a storyteller. Except in the in the books, he gets bogged down with a lot of irrelevant detail of meals and rooms. I wonder if I mean this is this is a conversation more in depth at a later date, but. I wonder if how things have changed with Mark, like with what he would thought. I I do perceive the guy as a, you mentioned Tolkien being a world world builder. I think Martin is just interested in just telling things as they come to his mind. And just, you know, these people are interesting and he finds something interesting that he wants to tell with this character and just follows that thread and just goes on and just does that. And it's not really type thing. I think that maybe in his mind, I'd like to think that the later on when magic becomes more prevalent and the White Walkers winters here, that he was maybe he thought, okay, at that point I'll come and I'll do that whole thing, the whole Night King thing, and we'll go, we'll go there and I'll do that. But right now I'm I'm really excited about Cersei and you know um, the uh, Joffrey. This is what I'm doing right now, you know. And later on I'll get to it. But since the show started and it took all off. He had to like, okay, I can't meander anymore. I can't just, I gotta, I gotta do this. I gotta do a thing. And then fandom went crazy and all the questions. And it's like, ugh, I can't just sit and write like the way I wanted to write, which was just kind of meandering and not have a point. Um, so the writers have to do that of this TV show. Um, and I think they're missing that. They're like, oh, you know, Martin in book 12 would have probably gotten around to the Night King. And then in book 17, finally we get the showdown. But uh, now we got to have, you know, we got to wrap it up because that's what. Well, it's yeah. TV. And, and I'm sure that, um, that every, every writer's process is different, but the, the way that you write for, for television is so different from a novelist because you're on a schedule, right? Like you can't, you don't have the luxury of, writing things as they come to you, you have to, you know, sit down in a committee and go, okay, what are we going to do with Littlefinger? Like, right. Is there anything else we can do? Do we want to, we want to push the relationship with Sansa any further? No, no, we should probably just kill him off then. And that's probably yeah. why he takes so long to, to write is just that, you know, he, as he gets inspired by somebody or a thought and an idea, then he just follows that thread. But if he doesn't have anything, then it's not like he's going to sit down and write. You can't say, hey, dude, get down there and finish your story that you have planned out. Well, 
if secretly he doesn't have a story planned out, just kind of a general idea. But what's real interesting to him is the character that he's writing today or that he get inspired by. So he's, his muse is being pushed forward with Arya right now. And that's what's pushing him. And you can't tell a guy to go finish your book, finish your story. If he does, if his story and his writing is whatever's inspiring and Hey, I'm just not inspired right now. You know? Well, and he, and I know you've said you, you started the books. The, the books are all written from, first person of one of the characters yeah i mean by by chapter so ned's execution you see through Arya's eyes okay um and 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 that makes me wonder you know about his his creative process as far as um sort of sort of inhabiting the mind of that character um, because it affects it affects the way that those scenes are are written because you you see you know you might you might hear a piece of information you know Arya overhears Varys and Littlefinger talking she doesn't understand what they're talking about but we do right um, I wonder who he what he, what the perspectives are he's going to be using or unless it's everybody's in his next book like who's going to be the ones that they're he's following through. Because all the characters are meeting. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, just to just I mean, to sit there and the, hear the story of the the big council meeting from one person's perspective will be vastly different from the others, you know. Well, right, and um, yeah, and it's and it's one of those things that that it sort of fundamentally changes the way the story can be told from book. To TV show because the the TV the show doesn't have any um, narration, right? And so you, but you have all of these other, you know, you have expressions and music and visual cues, things to convey information that you don't have in a book, right? I think one of the things that will be interesting to me as a non-reader um, is to I I, I kind of and I know this. People who are diehard Martin readers, uh, Song of Ice and Fire readers would hate me for saying this, is that I almost want to pick up right where, like his new book, like when he comes out. I'm like, I just want to read that forward (laughs) so that I just so I can see, okay, here's different. I know there's going to be a billion things that are like characters that are in the book that I don't understand. And there's going to be characters that are dead that I don't understand. And I'm like, where's Daryl? You know, Um, but uh, to get a Walking Dead reference, um, but I'd like right, to right. do it. I still like to know, like, where you know this is his thing, and now that he's been unshackled from like a deadline type thing, and he can just go back to writing, and nobody gives a damn. Uh, then we might actually see, you know, the ending. I actually wonder. I do wonder if he's going to write the ending, like in this next book. I don't know what he said or anything like that, but I want, he doesn't have to now he could continue writing for four more books. if He really wanted. I mean, based on the pace of the first five books, I don't think he can finish it in one more book. Right. So, you know, in the, in the books, they're like, well, I don't know. Cersei burns down a different building. It's like the, I think it's the tower where 
they kept her prisoner. Wasn't she in the Sept? Yeah, I don't. Except I don't think it's the Sept. It's like, it's like the Red Keep, not the Red Keep, but it, it's something like that. Okay. She burns that down. Um, Tyrion and Danny have just met. Um, and I think John has just died at the end of the last book. Got it. And so, like, there's all of that stuff that the show has already resolved that the book hasn't even hasn't even begun to. You know, and there's no way he's going to go at breakneck speed the way that this season's been. Right. There's going to be no teleporting. He'll tell you about every blade of grass along the way from <laughs> X to Y. I mean, and, and that's fine. That's, that's what he's doing. He should do that. But... Uh, you know, hopefully, because he's passed that and released off that chain, he can just write at his leisure. And I mean, for the fans, I hope that he does it before he dies. But um, it's not another wheel of time type thing. But he, uh, it'd be nice. You know, it'd be nice to to have four books, um, kind of like seeing the last Harry Potter, or the last Lord of the Rings, and well, actually, it's a bad example, but. Um, and then saying, hey, there's, there could be so much more here and going in, and reading them and saying, you get the full breadth. And it's like, oh, wow, I get four books out of, you know, I guess Hollywood does the opposite. Now they take one book and make four movies instead of taking four books and make one movie. But depending. Right. You got to know those sequels. Right. Unless you're the Dark Tower or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then in that case, you take 12 books and combine them into 90 minutes. <laughs> right. All right, man. I think that'll make it for our first episode. We're wrapping it up here. We've got a lot more to talk about. I think that we can move on to other video game things next next week or a lot of different plethora of stuff we've talked about in here a little bit more branch in. I'd like to do some more deep diving on a game in, in particular. Until uh, next time, I'm Michael Daniels. And I'm Dennis Rogers. For the Front Porch. Good night, everybody.